Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Good morning and welcome back to the final hour of Morning Air. On the memorial of the priest St. John Bosco, the founder of the Salesians. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverins and our studio producer, Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us on this very last day of the month of January here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. On Tuesdays, we always remember the guardian angels. Each one of us has a guardian angel, so we should pray often to our guardian angel and ask these heavenly companions for help help, uh, especially when we need it the most. I want to bring in our morning air team, Glenn and Sarah, once again. Glenn, what are a few of the big stories making headlines uh, here uh, this hour? Well, guys, got a pro-life case out of Philadelphia. This was the uh, case of Mark Houck, a, uh, a pro-life sidewalk counselor who uh, was uh, arrested and uh, the government going after him, uh, claiming he assaulted a 72-year-old clinic volunteer. Uh, these are the folks that try and uh, steer potential patients away from the sidewalk counselors, and he was acquitted on those charges Monday, thanks in part to help from the Thomas Morris Society. Peter Breen with that group said this case has been nothing but an intimidation tactic by the Biden Justice Department. No question about it, uh, Glenn. This was a huge, huge victory uh, for not only uh, Mark Hout's family, uh, but to, for pro-life Americans who uh, protect and help women outside of abortion clinics. Listen to uh, this uh, father of seven, Mark Houck's reaction, his uh, very enthusiastic reaction um, just outside the, the courthouse after the verdict, courtesy of Catholic News Agency. I'm just uh, so grateful for the, uh, the men that he surrounded me. It's Thomas More Society, the best lawyer in the city of Philadelphia. My family, I'm, I'm George Bailey today. <laughs> I love it. George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, what a reaction. Attorney Peter uh, Breen, uh, vice president and senior counsel at the Thomas More Society, spoke uh, with uh, Drew Mariani yesterday after the decision came down. This is the first time they've ever prosecuted a sidewalk counselor for an altercation with an aggressive abortion clinic escort. If every squabble on the sidewalk becomes a federal felony, you know, we're looking at 11 years in a penitentiary for it, it would utterly chill sidewalk counseling across the country. In this case, I mean, we got a full victory, unanimous verdict, not guilty, both counts. And I'll tell you, uh, yes, the jury was deadlocked on Friday. Well, the jury came in this morning. We had some issues and one of the jurors was excused. That alternate juror was seated. Within an hour, they had a verdict. It was the juror that needed to be excused that was causing the deadlock. And once you had 12 jurors who were you know, ready to deliberate and, and be a part of the process, we got that clear not guilty verdict. Yeah. So it was really only an hour. That's that the fantastic. Whole jury deliberated. And of course, you can listen to Drew's entire interview uh, from the Drew Mariani Show on the podcast at RelevantRadio.com. Uh, Glenn, uh, there's no question that these charges uh, were bogus uh, from the very beginning. Yeah, you know, states, uh, ever since Roe v. Wade, states where abortion is still legal, sometimes it's even more legal, and the the fight uh, getting tougher, actually, even though there are now 14 states 
where abortion is completely outlawed, which is a great thing, and babies are being saved there with the uh, the fight moving to the state level. And uh, these are kind of the battles that pro-lifers might be facing uh, in the future. So it's uh, it's very, very good that uh, this one turned out this way to kind of stand back against what seems almost to be some government persecution. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, began uh, his six-day trip uh, to Congo and, and uh, South Sudan. This is the first trip uh, to Congo in 37 years uh, for uh, Holy Father uh, since uh, John Paul II did it uh, back uh, in the 1980s. Yeah, not a bad place to go in terms of visiting Catholics. 52 million Catholics in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Holy Father will be there uh, today through Friday, and then he goes to South Sudan on the weekend as well. Very impoverished country there, but uh, good to see the Holy Father uh, out and about and able to make those travels. Absolutely, and uh, as he always does before these apostolic uh, trips, he makes a pit stop at St. Mary Major, uh, the beautiful basilica in Rome, uh, to uh, ask the Blessed Mother, uh, our Lady of, um, uh, well, as, she, as she's called there uh, in, in Roman, I forget the exact uh, name of, uh, of, of the uh, um, title for our Blessed Mother in that basilica, but uh, he always goes and prays there and asks for her uh, protection and help on these trips. Uh, so there's a beautiful picture of the, of the Pope praying in front of this icon of the Blessed Mother. You know, and speaking of trips today, along with being National Hot Chocolate Day, maybe you take some of that in your hand and it's planned for your vacation day. They say, guys, that half the fun, a full 50% of the fun of vacation is the, the planning and anticipation that goes into it ahead of time. I love it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not only uh, a plan your vacation day, but it's also National Hot Chocolate Day. So uh, on this day, in which uh, a lot of folks uh, from Texas all the way to the Midwest uh, and many parts of the country are experiencing some bone-chilling temperatures, uh, what a great day to uh, have a, a, a cup of uh, hot chocolate and uh, start making those plans for uh, the summer vacation. Absolutely, absolutely. Well below zero in the upper Midwest, so... Extra layer, folks, and hang on. For sure. Well, as as always, uh, Glenn, uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Hey, sure thing, John. We uh, begin every hour here on Morning Air. We always start in prayer. First things first, always giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings, remembering that every day is a blessing. And we always pray through the intercession of uh, the Blessed Mother, the Mother of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of Relevant Radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our number, if you want to be part of the conversation this morning, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. You can always find us on Twitter at Morning Air Show as well as on Facebook. And you can always send us uh, your thoughts via email, morningair at relevantradio.com. And now let's talk about love. 
month of this new year. Can you believe it? We're going to conclude uh, our conversation that we've been having over the past couple of weeks, a three-part mini-series on the great need for the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which is charity. Joining us live uh, this morning is our resident loveologist and hope-filled love evangelizer, Martha Fernandez Sardina, to share some final thoughts on how to ensure that we go about living a faith-filled, hope-anchored, and love-driven life in this world and in the world to come. Martha is an international bilingual speaker, the former director of evangelization for the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. and San Antonio, and she's also the founder of RememberYouAreLoved.com. Good morning, Martha. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Great to be with you once again. Can you believe it's the last day of the month, the last day of January? Good morning, John. Time flies whether you're having fun or not, and we're having fun, aren't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, I'm just curious, uh, how was uh, your speaking engagement that I know you had been looking forward to for some time uh, on the topic of faith, hope, and love this past weekend uh, with the good folks down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Oh, it's excellent. We had that conference, Anchor of Hope, at uh, Our Lady of Mercy, and I enjoyed great Southern and Cajun hospitality. Uh, thanks to the director and the assistant director of the Secretariat for Evangelization and Catechesis of the Diocese of Baton Rouge and the staff of Our Lady of Mercy Catholic Church and the entire team of women in the new evangelization. So a shout out to uh, Kelly and Alyssa and Dina and Shannon and Michelle and Deanna and the rest of the ladies. Did, and uh, also to Bishop Michael Luke Duca. Hey, did you have any Cajun food while you were down there? Uh, yes. And you know, I have food allergies, so I had to be very careful. But yes, I had some wonderful things on Friday night and the bishop joined us. So we shared a, a meal together and um, it was wonderful, wonderful food. And by the way, the bishop joined us not only for Friday night for the team dinner, but uh, we had uh, Saturday morning mass. He began our conference with mass and spent the day with 400 plus women. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so that was great. Yeah. Uh, just a, a, a little uh, uh, review of some of the things that you shared with those uh, women there at that, at that wonderful conference. Well, I gave a talk precisely titled uh, Living a Faith-Filled, Hope-Anchored, and Love-Driven Life. And it was uh, fun to share some uh, personal stories uh, with them and also to center on some of what you and I have been talking about uh, over the last couple of weeks, and, and we'll uh, wrap up today about how important faith, hope, and love are in our lives, in our daily lives, in our life as a society, especially these days when there's so much uncertainty, when there are so many attacks against our faith and against our love, and how to how to make sure that our lives are rooted, like the life of Esther, for example, is one of the things I mentioned. Uh, the great uh, uh, leader in the uh, of faith, hope, and love in the Old Testament, where um, she exercised that faith in God and hoped for God's deliverance and for love of her people, uh, prayed and fasted along with Mordecai and the rest of the people uh, of God and how uh, God brought about their deliverance. So uh, that's some of what uh, what I addressed with them and many other things that, that, uh, that I'd be happy to continue to share. And also, John, I witnessed the healing power of love, even as tears streamed down the cheeks of a teenager who needed to be love messaged, as I like to say, uh, with one of my wristbands and for whom I've been praying 
since Saturday. So Joelle, your life matters. You matter. And remember you are loved. And I'll be posting John some highlights and pictures at rememberyouareloved.com, which will take anyone who goes there to my Facebook page. And I'm happy to send a recording of my talk to anyone who requests it. Sounds like it was a fantastic uh, conference, uh, Martha. And so we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last Tuesday and, and talk about these three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and uh, how uh, they relate to one another. Yes, faith, hope, and love are really intertwined. And sometimes we don't realize it, but they, they feed one another and they lead to one another. And they all require an act of remembrance, remembering whose we are, we belong to God and who we are. We are children of God and remembering who God is. And so when we believe in God with faith, when we accept what he has revealed, we can trust his word. We can trust him. We can trust that he is. We believe we give credence to the fact that he is trustworthy and true. And when we have faith in God, when we believe God, we can hope in his promises, right? We can expect great things to come. We can wait and await the fulfillment of all that he has said, all that he has promised. And when we believe in God and therefore hope in God and his presence and his power and his promises, we're showing that we love God and that we've understood and accepted that he loves us. So the more we love, the more we believe, the more we believe, the more we hope, and the more we hope, the more we love. It seems to me that it, it's kind of a, uh, uh, a circle uh, that goes one leading to the other and to the other and to the other. And Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, in his encyclical uh, letter, uh, Space Salvi on Christian hope, he says that actually hope is linked to faith, and and that's what we're called to uh, a faith-based hope. And I can't remember if we touched on this a little bit last time, but he says in Space Salvi number two that hope is actually a form of faith. And I quote: He says, "We must listen a little more closely." to the Bible's testimony on hope. This is Pope Benedict in space all the years ago. Hope, he says, is in fact a key word in biblical faith. So much so, he says, that in several passages, the word faith and hope seem interchangeable. And that's beautiful, and we see that in the letter to the Hebrews, which he also goes on to explain. He says, thus, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, we see closely linked closely linked the fullness of faith to the confession of our hope without wavering. And that's why he goes on to say in the first letter of St. Peter in the Bible, when he's exhorting Christians to be always ready to give an answer concerning the logos, the meaning and the reason of their hope in uh, Hebrews 3.11, he says hope is equivalent to faith. So a lot of times when we say, I hope that this will happen, it's not like we said, I think the first week that we've been talking about this, just wishful thinking. No, hope for the Christian is because I understand the God in whom I'm trusting, I have that hope, that confident assurance of things that will come to be. And that's why in Hebrews, in fact, we hear that faith is, in Hebrews 11, uh, one and following, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that kind of faith, John, is the faith of our ancestors, of our forefathers that trusted in God and it was accredited to them, it says in scripture, as faith. It was accredited to them 
as justice. And so we want to imitate that kind of faith and hope and love. And Martha, it's so relevant that we're, we're talking about this uh, from Hebrews, which we're hearing in daily mass uh, here in recent days. And also uh, uh, Pope Benedict's encyclical letter, Space Salvi, which uh, you and I touched on briefly uh, in this uh, month of January, uh, especially with the passing of uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Uh, he, he was such a theologian and his writings were so unbelievable. I have that uh, encyclical letter sitting on top of my bookcase in my office uh, as, a, as a reminder of uh, the incredible teaching of Pope Benedict. That's beautiful. And it's almost as if he speaks from the grave, <laughs> by the way, in more than one way, because now there's a new book that came out <laughs> uh, posthumously. But yes, his teaching is so rich and he continues to speak to us. And uh, not only do we see this, this beautiful teaching in Space Salvi, but throughout his, his whole life, he himself was a witness to faith, hope, and love uh, with, with such a, a calling to, to the priesthood and, and to a strong Catholic committed life, um, which he received at such a young age. Um, what else um, does the, the book of, of Hebrews go on to say? Because I know that uh, it's just full of teaching when it comes uh, to faith and hope. Well, uh, there in, excuse me, in Hebrews 11, it speaks about that. But even earlier, the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews 6, it speaks about the certainty of God's promise. And in fact, depending on what Bible you have, you might have like these little headers. And that section of my Bible is in fact, the certainty of God's promise as the guarantee from the guarantor of our faith. So God is the guarantor of our faith and our hope based on a relationship of love. And when God speaks his word itself, his promise itself, he himself is the guarantee of what he is saying. So we see there um, that uh, he said that it says in Hebrews 6, 13, that when God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless and multiply you. And thus it was that Abraham patiently endured what he endured and obtained the promise. And so we too need, like Abraham, our father in the faith, which I'd like to add might be also our father in hope, that we need to imitate that and patiently endure and we will, like him, obtain the promise, whatever God has promised to us, especially the promise of eternal life. And so we see there that, um, as Pope Benedict says, faith and hope are interchangeable. And we have, as the, as the letter to the Hebrews says, in hope, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And it's a hope that enters the inner shrine beyond the curtain where Jesus, the forerunner of our faith, has entered. And that is one of the principal things that hope does for us. It makes us take into the future, so to speak, the faith that we have in the present based on the promises of God in the past. And that's why uh, Pope uh, Benedict, in the encyclical letter that he began to write before he resigned, <clears throat> and then was completed by Pope Francis in what he himself called a work of four hands. In this encyclical letter, uh, Lumen Fide, it says, in Numbers 9 and 10, it speaks about the memoria futuri, that like Abraham, we look to the past, but we remember the future. Now, I say to myself, and I said to the ladies on Saturday, how can, how can you... How can you remember the future if it hasn't happened? Because you look into the future, knowing the God who has been present and powerful in the past and is right now in the present. So it says in Lumen Fide, Abraham's faith was also, would also, would always be an act of remembrance. 
this remembrance is not fixed on past events, but as the memory of a promise capable of opening up the future, shedding light on the path to be taken. We see, he says, how faith as a remembrance of the future, memoria futuri, is thus bound up with hope. And what I want to say to our listeners is this. It doesn't matter what we might be going through in the present or have gone through in the past. I mean, it does matter. But what really matters is the God who has been present in the past, is now in the present, and will be in the future. And whatever God has promised us will be delivered by the God who has given himself as the guarantor, as the guarantee of his word. And that's how we can live a faith-filled, hope-anchored, and love-driven life. What are uh, some of the uh, faith, hope, and love builders, and what are some of the uh, love busters? Well, I'm going to propose real quickly, uh, some of the faith builders spend time with the Word, with the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Logos, as your Lord and Savior and Master and Teacher and Companion and Counsel. That's number one, spend time with the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Secondly, spend time in the Word of God, the written word of God, sacred scripture. Make sure that you go into the word of God every day, every week, every month of the year. Number three, get into the word of God orally transmitted, the word of God preserved and taught in sacred tradition for the last 2000 years. And find there declarations of faith, hope, and love. In fact, I'm going to post on rememberyouarelove.com today, uh, the Walking with Purpose Catholic Women's Bible, I Declares. And wherever it says uh, daughter, sons, you go ahead and put son. Wherever it says wife or husband, you just switch it to, to the opposite gender. But those are some declarations that are biblically-based truths that will be uh, builders up of faith, hope, and love. So look up to God and look into your soul, into your heart, into your mind, and see where your soul, heart, and mind may have been polluted or soiled or, or occupied and trashed with faith-weakening, hope-bursting, love-chilling beliefs and emotions and behaviors and, and, and rid yourself of those. And also seek as a builder, as a faith, hope, and love builder, seek and find fellowship with other believers, with other hopers, with other lovers, with people who have strong faith and unwavering hope and undying love and ask for help and find support and get rid of the devil in your life. Resist the devil solid in your faith, St. Peter, the first Pope says. Now those are some of the builders and some of the busters, John, are based right on, on the opposite of that. So fear, distress, and loneliness, those will undercut our faith, hope, and love. Doubt, agitation, and isolation, those sow seeds and grow weeds that eat up and destroy our faith, hope, and love. Unbelief, fixation on what's wrong, and indifference, those slowly or rapidly undermine the very foundations of our faith, hope, and love. So beware of any and all attacks on our love of God, of self, of neighbor, and know that the love of God must live within our hearts because as uh, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, in the end, three things will remain and the greatest faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So make sure you learn how to believe rightly, hope firmly, and love deeply and love well. And, and all will be well. That's really what it's all about. Uh, final moment, uh, just a, a quick story you can share with us, uh, uh, inspirational story of uh, faith, hope, and love um, that uh, you can leave with us here this morning. Well, there are very many witnesses of hope. I encourage everyone to look up Cardinal Francis Xavier 
and Nguyen Van Thuan, who was cruelly imprisoned in a North Vietnamese communist prison for 13 years, nine of which was in solitary confinement. And all through it, he said, thanks to God's help, I never regretted my destiny. Even when he was stripped away from everything, he says, when I was alone in my prison cell, I continued to be tormented by the fact that I was only 48 years old in the prime of my life, that I had worked only eight years as a bishop and I'd gained so much pastoral experience. And there I was isolated, inactive and far from people. And then it dawned on him, this right here is where I must serve. And then when they deported him on, on a boat out with uh, 1,500 other prisoners, he said, here's my cathedral. Here are the people of God, the people God has given to me to care for. Here's my mission to ensure God's presence among them. So that is a witness of both of hope. Look him up. I'll also post a link to his book, uh, Von Tuan, Cardinal Von Tuan. And uh, there are so many witnesses of faith, John. So I think to, I say to people, if you're wavering in your faith, if you're wavering in your hope, if you're wavering in your love, find strong witnesses to faith, hope, and love, and do not let anyone or anyone take it from you. And hold, know that also hope is an acronym. Hold on, pain ends. H-O-P-E. Hold on, pain ends. And another one, help open people's eyes to what God has for us. Help offer people expectations. H-O-P-E. I love it. Uh, you're just so filled with uh, teaching and inspiration. Uh, real quickly, where can our listeners um, uh, find your uh, Anchor of Hope uh, talk that you gave uh, to the women for the New Evangelization Conference in Baton Rouge? Well, I uh, recorded it informally, but if anyone uh, contacts me at rememberyouarelove.com, I'll try to get the uh, audio to you. Rememberyourlove.com is my website. It'll take you to my Facebook page. And I'm having trouble, again, with marthafernandezsardina.com, and it's not uploading correctly. So, But don't give up. You can find me there at rem uh, rememberyourlove.com or marthafernandezsardina.com. And remember, you are loved. And so are you. Martha, thank you so much. Martha Fernandez, Sadina, the founder of RememberYouAreLoved.com. We need to take a short break when Morning Air continues. Catholic apologist William Albrecht will be with us to discuss Acts 15 and the papacy. What does sacred scripture and tradition say about the role of St. Peter at the First Church Ecumenical Council? Stay with us as the final hour of Morning Air continues here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. is Morning Air, your home for faith, fun, and news in the morning. Jump into the conversation. Call 888-914-9149. Todo aquello que piensa que la vida es desigual. I love it. Love that peppy Latino music to start us off here. Welcome back to Morning Air on the memorial of the priest St. John Bosco, the founder of the Salesians. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for tuning in on this Tuesday morning, the last day of the month of January here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook 
at Morning Air Show. And uh, you can always send us uh, your thoughts uh, via email, morningair at relevantradio.com. Our power scripture from the Playbook of Life this morning is from 1 John 4.18. The beloved disciple St. John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Whatever the situation, no matter how tough it may be, our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want us to live in fear. Jesus the Lord says bluntly, fear is useless. What is needed is trust, which explains why we always pray with great confidence from the Chapel of Divine Mercy, Jesus, I trust in you. Our number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about papal authority and the role of the first Pope, St. Peter the Apostle, at the First Church Council, the Council of Jerusalem, as described in the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Some Protestant uh, Christian brother and sisters uh, claim that Acts 15 shows that St. James the Less, not Peter, was the head of the early church. But what does the evidence say from sacred scripture and sacred tradition? Joining us live uh, this morning is Morning Air contributor and Catholic convert, our resident apologist, William Albrecht, with much more on Acts uh, chapter 15 and the papacy. William is an international speaker and debater, and he's participated participated in well over 65 live uh, and moderated debates. He runs a website called patristicpillars.com, which is dedicated to the early church fathers. He's also the author of several books, including The Definitive Guide to Solving Biblical Questions About Mary and the Secret History of Transubstantiation. Good morning, William. Thanks so much for joining us once again. It is great to be with you. Good morning, brother. It is great to be with you, and particularly great to be able to talk about a vitally important topic. As you mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be talking about the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, and particularly we realize what our evangelical friends have to say. And hopefully today, as we take a deep dive into the text, we will get a clearer picture as to why Catholics say what they say about the role of St. Peter and the successors of Peter, I think we're going to have a blast. Absolutely. Uh, Brother William, always enjoy our time together. Before we talk about uh, specifically um, Acts and the papacy, can you explain that there is a very strong biblical evidence for papal authority, uh, beginning with Matthew 16, uh, that Peter was clearly the head of the Twelve Apostles? Without a doubt, St. Peter, given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, where he shall bind and he shall loose, very clear language that Peter is told that he is going to be made the rock of the church. And the incredible thing of that, the fact that Peter is made the rock, really does come into full picture when we read the Gospel of St. John, chapter 21, and the Gospel of St. Luke, where in, in the Gospel of John, uh, Peter is literally called a poimaini, which in the Greek means a shepherd. Now, if he's a shepherd over the flock of Christ, well, that tells you exactly what his role was meant to be, and that role was a leader. But how was he meant to lead the flock? Well, he was meant to lead the flock, as Luke 22 tells you, to strengthen the brethren, as Luke 22 says. He is meant to strengthen them, and that Greek word, stay rich on, is a very important word because it means he's going to be the leader. He's going to be the head of the band of the apostles. As you point out, brother, the Gospels bring it out very clearly, and then the book of Acts shows you 
the words of our Lord indeed were true. Yeah, the evidence uh, from Scripture, and uh, we even see uh, the shadows of uh, of, uh, of this authority that came to Peter uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, we, we see um, in, in the uh, book of Isaiah, uh, we, we see uh, allusions uh, to those uh, keys of, of the kingdom. And uh, so clearly there's very strong evidence, and we're going to dive into uh, Acts 15. But in, in Acts overall, there's a ton of evidence of uh, uh, Peter's uh, part uh, in being the head of, of the 12 apostles and, and the early early church. And, and one of the things that I find very fascinating, William, is, is that, uh, you know, Peter's always mentioned first, uh, Peter, James, and John. It's always Peter and then the rest of the apostles. In fact, Peter's name is mentioned 191 times, uh, more than all the rest of the apostles combined, uh, with only uh, St. John being mentioned 48 times uh, in second place. That really is incredibly significant and important that you bring that forth, because we realize that the very fact that Peter's name is put first really has an important symbolism. Now, what does it symbolize? Well, it points to the fact that Peter was the leader of the band of the apostles, of the apostles, and it shows you that strength that he was given by Christ. But, you know, merely just saying that doesn't always work for evangelical friends. We have to show them, okay, well, is there any example of St. Peter's power that Christ gave him being utilized? And we have it right there in the book of Acts, because we know that St. James was the bishop of Jerusalem. But what are they discussing? What are they dialoguing about? Well, they're talking about circumcision. They're talking about whether or not they, individuals coming to the church, needed to undergo circumcision. And it's a long and lengthy discussion, but in verses 6 and 7, Peter is the one that stands up, and he gives the decision on circumcision. I think we have to be really clear here. The decision was not that of James, but of Peter. And James himself makes that clear. In verse 14, he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related. So Simon is the one that's related. How God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So this is incredibly significant that after much debate goes on, as the Greek text says, much debate, only one stands up and only one makes that decision. How incredible is that, brother? James, of course, confirms what Peter says, saying it is his judgment. That is magnificent, isn't it, brother? Well, um, William, it's interesting. Uh, why is it then that our uh, Protestant brothers and sisters misinterpret uh, this chapter 15 of Acts, and, and they actually think that it's uh, James the Less, uh, the other James, not uh, the, the brother of the Apostle John. James the Less uh, is, is the, uh, the, the leader of, of the early church. They don't see all of these uh, clearly uh, cited um, examples of the evidence that it's Peter. Yes, and that really is an unfortunate thing there, because I think what they focus upon, what our evangelical friends really focus upon, John, is the fact that you realize that James the Lesser is the bishop of Jerusalem, and he, he says, Simeon has related, and he says, brothers, listen to me. They believe that all of that is indicative of James being the one that's the leader, but unfortunately, they're not reading the full text, because what James is doing, St. James, 
he is confirming what Simon Peter has laid down as a rule. And this is important because when he says, brothers, listen to me, and rightly so, if, the, if he's the bishop of Jerusalem, rightly so, he can say that. He does. He say, says, listen to me. But then what does he confirm? He says, Simeon, Simon, has related. This is Simon's decision. It was the decision of Simon Peter. And St. James confirms that in verse 14, which, brother, I've got to say, is the exact model of future ecumenical councils we see in the church. And uh, we, we see uh, not only there in, in Acts 15, but we, we see uh, from the very beginning, uh, we see uh, Peter uh, in Acts chapter 1 uh, heading the meeting which elected uh, uh, St. Matthias. In chapter 2, uh, he led the apostles in preaching on Pentecost, uh, and, and later on he received the first converts. Uh, we see the first miracle after Pentecost performed by Peter, and on and on and on. Uh, Peter is all over the book of Acts. He truly is, brother. And then the other objection we will hear once all of that has been established, our evangelical friends or even our Eastern Orthodox friends will say, okay, well, you know, we can get on board with all of that. But where is the example that the office of papacy of Peter must continue in perpetuity? Well, it's right there, as you mentioned, brother, in Acts 1, where St. Peter, right there we realize it is written, we read, for it is written in the book of Psalms in verse 20, let his dwelling be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Well, what are they quoting that for? They're quoting that to fill the vacant office left by Judas. And literally in verse 20 where it says, let another take his office, it's a Greek word episkopen, which is a Greek word for bishopric. It shows you there, if there is a vacancy, that must be filled, and that is done biblically. So the teaching of St. Peter, the papacy, and his successors, as you see, brother, is strongly there in the Bible. And it's also a matter of common sense. Uh, if Jesus made Peter the rock in uh, Matthew uh, uh, chapter 16, why in the world would he make him the rock and then not pass on that authority, that keys of those keys of the kingdom uh, to his successors? Yeah, that really would not make any sense at all. And as you show, how on earth could that be the case? How on earth could it be the case that these keys would not pass on if we realize in Matthew chapter 28, the command was to go and to baptize all nations. Are you going to tell me that these keys would end? It would stop right there with the death of St. Peter? Well, if one were to try to make that case, one would have to be able to show that there is a break in continuity in history, brother. But as our Catholic friends know very well, we know that throughout history, after the death of St. Peter, we have an unbroken succession of popes that continue all throughout history. There are popes that are there at the head of every ecumenical council. That is what makes an ecumenical council the very presence of the papacy of the pope. Or as we know in the early era when the pope couldn't travel, how did we know a council was official? The pope would send his legates and that would be giving it the stamp of approval. That is something that we know and we can be comfortable with as as Catholics, brother, but we don't only say that 
from our personal opinion, we can even show from early church history that that is how they interpreted the book of Acts and many other Gospels of the Bible. Bingo. We want to talk about the early church fathers after the break. They had a lot to say about papal authority and uh, even uh, as we see it in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. If you want to be part of the conversation uh, that we're having about uh, the authority of St. Peter and the papacy, uh, if you want to uh, ask a question or you have any thoughts you want to share with uh, Catholic apologist William Albrecht, we are absolutely taking your calls here this morning, 888 if you are a, um, a non-Catholic Christian uh, that has some questions about papal authority, this is the perfect opportunity to ask um, our resident uh, Catholic apologist, uh, William Albrecht, uh, directly. So we're going to take a short break. We'll come back with much more. We'll talk about the early church fathers on the other side. Stay with us. Looking at life through a Catholic lens, this is Morning Air on Relevant Radio. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us here on Relevant Radio on the Relevant Radio app as we continue our fascinating conversation about papal authority, and specifically uh, we're focusing on Acts chapter 15 with our resident apologist, William Albrecht. Uh, William, uh, let's dive right into the early church fathers. Uh, the early church fathers had a lot to say about papal authority uh, in general and the, the role of St. Peter uh, in Acts uh, chapter uh, 15. Yeah, the important thing and the incredible thing, John, is that when we look at what the early church fathers have to say, we realize that we have fathers east and west. When they provide their commentary in Acts 15, it's virtually the same thing. We have the great St. John Chrysostomos, the golden mouth one. In his katana on the Acts, he tells us, he says, through my mouth, see how Peter shows that God spoke through him. And the incredible thing here is that he then follows that up by saying, notice how Peter first allowed the question to be debated in the church, and then he was the one that stood up and spoke. Here's the incredible thing, John. We've got St. John Chrysostomus, and we have others as well. If we have time permits, we'll read another one. But the incredible thing is we have fathers in the Greek-speaking church and in the Latin-speaking church, what is the significance of that? That shows you that the interpretation of the role of St. Peter, and in particular in the book of Acts, was a universal one. It was a Catholic one. The early church recognized this role of Peter in an incredible way. Another church father, St. Irenaeus, uh, taught by St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. Uh, he wrote that Christians must be united to the Church of Rome in order to maintain apostolic tradition. And uh, uh, he, he had some incredible stuff uh, that he wrote about when it comes to uh, the, uh, the reality of the papacy and the, uh, the line of succession. St. Irenaeus, a doctor of the church, as you mentioned there, brother, is a very incredible and early uh, witness to the historicity of the Gospels and shows you that unbroken apostolic succession is also an incredible witness to the historicity of the resurrection. And what he says there about Rome is incredibly important. We have to ask our evangelical friends, even our Eastern Orthodox friends, if you are not united visibly to Rome, 
then there may be an issue there because the early church viewed union with Rome, and in particular with the bishop of Rome, as a necessity. That is why St. Jerome says that at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, there was only one that was the prime mover of so great authority, and that was Peter. The early church was very clear in this, brother. No question. Early church uh, accepted the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church, and uh, we see that uh, in, in the writings of the fathers, uh, we, we see it clearly in the fourth Bishop of Rome, uh, Pope Clement. Uh, there's so much more that we could talk about. We just uh, skimmed the surface, uh, William, uh, but I uh, really do appreciate uh, your perspective. Uh, you, you know this stuff so well. Thank you for having me on. I cannot wait to be back to delve in deeper into the Holy Bible and into our wonderful early church fathers. Real quickly, where can our listeners uh, find out more? Yeah, they can find out more information about me at patristicpillars.com. There they can find out a whole ton about books I'm working on, talks, and debates that I'm working on. Thanks again, brother. Catholic apologist William Albrecht, the author of the Definitive Guide to Solving Biblical Questions about Mary, Mary Among the Evangelists. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Our story today is called A Good, Bad Hair Day. It was a rainy, humid day, the mother of all bad hair days. I was riding on a bus downtown to go to work. The windows in the bus were covered in condensation so thick you couldn't see outside. Everyone was wilting. I was sitting next to a man in a business suit and didn't pay much attention until we both got off at the same stop and walked to the same newsstand to get a morning paper. The man running the stand was obviously having a bad day. He was rude, abrupt, and unsmiling as we bought our papers, which served only to add more gloom to my day. The businessman caught my eye and smiled, and then he proceeded to smile brightly thank the newsstand proprietor for the paper and for being open on such a morning to make sure we were able to get our papers. In short, he expressed his appreciation for something that most of us would take for granted. The man running the newsstand responded only with a grunt and a sour expression. The businessman then pleasantly wished him a good day. As we turned away, I asked this man why he continued to be pleasant to the newsman who obviously didn't care about and didn't respond to his expression of appreciation and friendliness. The businessman grinned at me and said, Why would I let someone else control what I say and what I feel or what kind of day I'm going to have? We then separated to go to our respective workplaces. To this day, I don't know who that man was, where he worked, or anything else about him. I never saw him again, even though I looked for him on the bus on other days. He appeared briefly in my life and disappeared just as quickly. I don't even remember what he looked like, but I've never forgotten the words that he said or the way his smile seemed like a shaft of lights on a gloomy day. That was a good 25 years ago, but the impact this had on my life has lasted. I never had a chance to thank him personally, but the way in which I try to choose to look at life as a result of those words is his legacy to me and my thanks to him. Our interactions with the people we encounter can impact at least the next five people that person encounters. A smile and words of simple appreciation multiply themselves geometrically. We cannot control people in situations that come to us, but we can always control our response to them. And in such positive decisions lie our control and personal power to make a positive difference. It's something anyone and everyone can do. It's a real legacy that can impact both the present and the future. From Philippians 4.11, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. 
Great message, Glenn, as always. Thanks again. Uh, try to get to Daily Mass if you can, and pray the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky, 7 p.m. Central tonight and every night of the week here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. That'll do it for this Tuesday edition of Morning Air for Glenn Leverance, producers Sarah Tafoya, Gabby Burke, our entire Morning Air team. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us. Let your light shine before all. God bless America. We'll see you Wednesday on the next Morning Air. The Patrick Madrid Show is next. <laughs>